In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Thanks, Carl. Well, I, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I hope it won't be too uh, discombobulating for the children to uh, sit through the sermon listening for abstruse and esoteric words. Um, I, I do try and speak uh, in the uh, language of the people, uh, so hopefully uh, there won't be too many of those words that they don't understand. Actually, I was reading uh, on my holidays, I read Middlemarch by George Eliot, who's a woman, uh, actually. She wrote under a pseudonym. Uh, And she used the word blent uh, as the past tense for blend, instead of blended. So there you go. I thought, isn't that interesting? Uh, Perhaps you can try and use blent in a sentence this week uh, and see what people say. Say, well, it was good enough for George Eliot, so why isn't it good enough for you? Well, there you go. To be a good lesson for those people. Let's pray as we come to God's word. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you not only spoke in days gone by, but that you still speak powerfully through your Holy Spirit uh, in the words that he caused to be written down for us so that we might be wise through, uh, for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, and Lord, we ask that as we Uh, think about your word this morning now, that we would hear you speaking to us uh, and that you would equip us and make us mature in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, there is, uh, in case you weren't aware, no perfect church this side of eternity. Uh, Not even under the leadership of Jesus' apostles, not even under the leadership of those hand-picked leaders of the church, Not even under them was the church perfect. And the little account that we just read from uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 6 is a great reminder, I think, of that reality. The book of Acts is an account. It's written by the historian Luke. It's about the early days of the church and it's packed with excitement and adventure uh, and of all kinds of things. It's an account of the spread of the gospel. It's an account also of the challenges that that gospel work faced. As we've gone through the early chapters of Acts, we've seen that the gospel is challenged by persecution in the form of arrests and trials and beatings and all kinds of things. We've seen that the work of the gospel is challenged by hypocrisy within the church. 
And here at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, the work of the gospel faces another challenge, a different challenge. It faces the challenge of disagreement and division in the church itself. That is not just an ancient problem, but it's a problem that faces the church in every age. In our day, as much in the day when these words were written, when these events took place. Well, the church uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 6 has been growing and it's as it grows that this dispute arises between uh, the Jews of Greek descent and the Jews of uh, Hebrew descent. That is, this dispute kind of ran along cultural or racial lines. The Greek followers of Jesus felt that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So you might remember that one of the things that the early church did was they pulled their resources when someone was in need and and distributed that to those people who who needed it. And in that way, they looked after each other. And it seems that some of the people felt that all the food, all the support, uh, all the help and care was going to one particular sector of the church, the uh, Hebrew-speaking Christians, and that the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked. But instead of bringing that uh, oversight, that problem to the attention of the apostles, the Greek-speaking Jews or Christians grumble and complain. We're told in verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews, the Greek Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What did they do? They complained. The term complaint maybe sounds a little bit indifferent. A complaint, after all, can be a a genuine concern. You can make a, you you know, you can file a complaint uh, to a department, to an organisation, to say, look, there's there's a problem here that needs to be fixed. But that's not what is going on here. The the, the underlying term here hints at something like grumbling under your breath or talking behind people's backs. It's actually a term taken from the Old Testament when it's used in Exodus chapter 16 to describe the way that the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the desert. It's also used in Numbers 17 for the way that they grumbled again against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. The fact that the apostles responded to this complaint by appointing uh, men to oversee the distribution of food suggests that there may have been a genuine problem, a genuine oversight. But Luke also wants us to understand that the response of the, the people was itself not immediately helpful or godly. In, their, in fact, their response, he wants us to understand, I think, was an awful lot like the response of the people in the Old Testament. A response of grumbling and complaining against God's leaders. God, through Luke, wants us to understand that persecution and opposition is not the only threat that the church faces or that the gospel faces. Satan has tried to stop the advance of the gospel through persecution and that hasn't worked. He's tried to stop the advance of the gospel through hypocrisy within the church in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira and that hasn't worked either. And now he tries to undermine the work of the gospel by... by bringing grumbling and complaint and division within the church. Grumbling is like a cancer. 
in the life of a church. It slowly eats out the heart of a church. It slowly and silently often eats out the heart of a church. The best illustration I know of that comes from a little book by uh, Mark Deaver called What is a Healthy Church? And he begins his book with this little parable. Well, it's actually quite long, but it's worth, it's worth uh, reading and listening to uh, this parable that he has of the life of the church. He writes, Nose and hand were sitting in the church pew talking. The morning service, led by ear and mouth, had just ended and Hand was telling Nose that he and his family had decided to look for a different church. Really? Nose responded to Hand's news. Why? Oh, I don't know, Hand said, looking down. He was usually slower to speak than other members of the church body. I guess because the church doesn't have what Mrs Hand and I are looking for. Well, what are you looking for in a church, Nose asked. The tone in which he spoke those words was sympathetic. But even as he was speaking them, he knew he would dismiss Hand's answer. If the Hands couldn't see that Nose and the rest of the leadership were pointing the church in the right direction, the body could do without them. Hand had to think before answering. He and Mrs Hand, like Pastor Mouth and his family, and Minister of Music Ear meant well, Well, I guess we're looking for a place where people are more like us, Hand finally stammered. We tried spending time with the legs, but we didn't connect with them. Next, we joined the small group for all the toes, but they kept talking about socks and shoes and odours, and that didn't interest us. Then we attended the Sunday school for all you facial features, but everyone just wanted to talk and listen and smell and taste. It It felt like... Well, it felt like you never wanted to get to work and get your hands dirty. Anyway, Mrs Hand and I were thinking about checking out that new church over on East Side. We hear they do a lot of clapping and hand raising, which is closer to what we think we need right now. Nose replied, I see what you mean. We'd hate to see you go, but I guess you've got to do what's good for you. At that moment, Mrs Hand, who'd been caught up in another conversation, turned back to join her husband and Nose. Hand briefly explained what he and Nose had been talking about, after which Nose repeated his sadness at the prospect of losing the hands. But again he said that he understood since it sounded like their needs weren't being met. Mrs Hand nodded in agreement. She wanted to be polite, but truth be told, she wasn't sad to be leaving. And here it is. Her husband had made just enough critical remarks about the church over the years that her heart had begun to reflect his. No, he'd never burst into an open tirade against the body. In fact, he usually apologised for being so negative, as he put it. But the little complaints that he let slip out here and there had had an effect. The small groups were a little cliquish, The music was a little out of date. The programs did seem a little silly. The teaching wasn't entirely to their liking. In the end, it was hard for the two of them to put their fingers on it, but they finally decided that the church wasn't for them. It would be funny, wouldn't it, if it actually wasn't so true. The little comments made over years, the little complaints, the little grumbles, actually erode the church 
And in the end, people find themselves thinking, well, I don't like this church, but I don't even know why I don't like it anymore. Because the erosion and decay has been so slow and taken place over so many years. Grumbling weakens the church. Grumbling erodes the gospel witness of the church. So next time you go to grumble to somebody about the church, don't do it. And next time somebody grumbles to you, say to them, no, I don't want to hear what you have to grumble about because what you're doing is destroying the church and destroying the witness of the church. If you have a genuine concern, then bring it to somebody's attention. And when you do that, instead of assuming the worst, assume the best. So instead of, instead of saying to someone, we're really struggling at the moment and nobody cares about us, instead say, I know that we haven't been forgotten. I know that people really do care about us. And so I just wanted you to know that we are struggling and we could really do with some help. Grumbling and division can damage the progress of the gospel. And that was the threat that faced this early church. Even in that vibrant ministry, those vibrant times, division and grumbling uh, risked damaging the church. Well, even though the complaint wasn't raised in the best way, the apostles still handle the situation with great wisdom and great love. In response, the 12 apostles call together all the members of the church, all the disciples, the whole church in Jerusalem, and they offer a way to solve the problem. So they say in verse 2, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. There's so much wisdom, I think, in their response that we can learn from. First of all, they gather the whole church. The disagreement and division threatens the whole church and so they call the whole church together to deal with the problem together. Next, they propose, the apostles propose a solution. They ask the church as a whole to appoint these seven men to take on the task of overseeing the distribution of the food. They also set out guidelines for choosing candidates. The seven men, we're told, are to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Isn't that interesting? That their task is distributing food and yet they still are required to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We think... Well, no, we just need the Holy Spirit and wisdom for leadership and for preaching the gospel. But actually, we need the Holy Spirit in whatever task uh, we have to be doing. And having proposed a solution, these leaders set out the requirements uh, and they involve the church in identifying the people who fit the bill. So their style of leadership is neither totalitarian, that is, they don't impose the solution from on high, but they invite the church to be part of resolving the problem. But neither is their leadership entirely egalitarian, that is, they propose a solution, the apostles propose a solution, they specify the requirements for the candidates, that they must be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. But most of all, the apostles put in place a structure to make sure that the job is done rather than leaving and hoping that it's done by people's whims. 
There's a pastor uh, on the central coast of New South Wales who likes to talk about beads and sandals Christianity. And what he means by beads and sandals Christianity is the idea that we don't need any structures in the life of the church, but the way that the church should work is the picture that we get in Acts 2. You might remember at the end of Acts chapter 2, the church, the picture of the church there is that whenever somebody has a need, someone would uh, take it on themselves to meet their need uh, individually. So nothing needs to be organised, it said. Things just happen automatically. So in Beads and Sandals Christianity, churches which have a structure are considered bad. And other churches which have no structure at all are considered good. Uh, It often goes by another name these days, which is organic church. It's a kind of a free-range hippie church. And oddly enough, actually, it often seems to be coupled with uh, political activism and a very non-organic view of the government. That is, church government should be organic, but political government in the country should be anything but. But the picture that Axe paints is not that organic is good and structures are bad, nor is it that organic is bad and structures solve every problem that the church faces. No, Acts 2 shows us the church at its best. At its best, the church takes on itself individually the responsibility to love and care for each other. So if we see someone in need, we act to do something about it. But Acts 6 shows us that as the church gets bigger it's possible for people to be overlooked. And so we need to organise things and to be more careful and to be more thoughtful about how we do things to make sure that people aren't overlooked, so that people are cared for. Small families can operate ad hoc, but as has been often pointed out, bigger families, when you go to their house, their fridge tends to look... uh, (laughs) like a spreadsheet with organisational charts uh, and rosters of what everybody has to do. As the church grows, we often need to do things more formally and put structures in place, not because structures are fun, woo structure, but because structure is loving and they help to make sure that people are not overlooked. So, for instance, in our church, we have deacons who oversee the physical needs of people in the church. Their job is not to care for every single person in this church community. Their job is to make sure that nobody is overlooked. So if you see somebody in need who needs physical help, you can offer to help them. You don't need to wait for the deacons to get involved. But if it's a situation that you can't, don't feel you can help out, and then you can bring it to their attention. And they'll make sure that that person isn't left uh, hanging. It's the same actually with the elders as well. The elders oversee the spiritual needs of the church and their job is not to encourage everyone and rebuke everyone and teach everyone and disciple everyone. In the New Testament, those tasks are clearly the tasks of the entire church, to encourage each other daily so that we might be built up in Christ. Instead, the task of the elders is to make sure that nobody is overlooked, that no one is left behind that the whole church community is receiving the ministry of the whole church. Of course, it's possible for a church to get bogged down in structure. 
But just as unnecessary complexity is unloving, so too is failing to be thoughtful and organise things in order to make sure that people are well looked after. So the disciples, I think, show great wisdom in dealing with this threat to the church and this threat to the gospel. They address the problem with the church, they propose a solution, they set the requirements for the men to be appointed, they involve the church in coming to a resolution, and they put these structures in place to make sure that people are cared for and loved. But perhaps the greatest wisdom that the apostles show in this whole situation is in jealously guarding their central responsibility and in jealously guarding the central responsibility of the church. Their underlying motive uh, can be seen in verse 2 when they say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And they say again in verse 4 that their focus ought to be on prayer and the ministry of the word. They'd been taught by Jesus. They'd, uh, Jesus had explained to them who he was. Jesus had explained to them the Old Testament. He commissioned them to preach the gospel. For them to spend all their time waiting on tables, sorting out the distribution of food, would have been a waste of what Jesus had equipped them to do. It would be like going to university uh, you know, to study economics and then getting a job at McDonald's or something like that. It would be a waste of the training. The church set aside these seven men not only to make sure that the task was done properly, but also to make sure that the apostles were not distracted from the task of prayer and the ministry of the word. There's an important principle, I think, in that. You see, while it's true that the task of spreading the gospel has been given to each of us individually... And while it's true, as we've seen, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to empower us to do that, it's also true that the church carries out the Great Commission together, not just individually. We do it collectively. So we don't all do exactly the same amount of everything. We don't all do the same amount of evangelism in all the same ways. We don't all wait on tables. We don't all travel to the far side of the world to to set up a, a hospital in another country. We're not all mums and dads teaching our children who Jesus is. We all serve Jesus in different ways, but together we use our gifts for the same purpose of promoting the gospel. You know, there are 14,000 people in the Royal Australian Air Force. That's a lot of people. I don't know if you know how many planes we have in Australia, but it's not that many. It's in the hundreds. So the number of pilots in the Royal Australian Air Force is a tiny fraction of the people who are employed by that organisation. The point of the Air Force, generally speaking, is to have pilots who can engage in combat at a time of war. But there are thousands of people who will never sit in a plane, but who support and work towards that end. People whose jobs are absolutely crucial to make sure that those planes can fly. But as crucial as those jobs are, they do not define the purpose of the Air Force. So that if the government said, well, we're trying to save money, so what we're going to do is we're going to sack all the pilots. There'd still be an Air Force 
but it wouldn't be doing the job that it had been set up to achieve. In the same way, the distribution of food and welfare is not the primary task of the church. That is not to say it's not an important task. But it serves the greater purpose of bringing people to maturity in Christ through prayer and the, the ministry of word. It's, it's to provide the foundation and the context in which that can happen. In which people can hear the gospel and be built up in the word. It's important to realise that the central task of the church is the ministry of the word because if we're not doing that, we're just another club or another social organisation or welfare agency. We need to make sure that as a church we're not distracted from that primary task of making disciples of all nations and of teaching people to love God, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus and to pray that God would do that. We can become so busy doing all kinds of other things so many things that don't have anything to do with the gospel, that we lose prayer in the ministry of the word altogether. How many churches have, has that happened to? We can also be distracted at an individual level. We become so busy that we never pray. We can become so busy patching up people's problems that we never talk to them about Jesus. Or so busy writing letters to politicians or protesting in parks that we never preach the gospel. One of the hidden dangers, I think, of democracy is that we spend all our times trying to fight political battles and we never preach the gospel. As parents, too, it's possible to spend so much time making the perfect meal, the perfect packed lunch, shuttling our kids to music practice, to sport or to whatever else it is that they're doing that we become completely distracted from one of the central tasks in bringing our children up, which is to tell them about Jesus and to pray that God would be at work in their lives. The point of this chapter is not that we have to choose between one thing or the other. The point is we have to recognise the danger of being distracted and to work hard to make sure that we're not. That might be appointing different people to different tasks. That might mean setting aside particular times to do particular things. In the church context, it means we need to make sure that those people that God has equipped for prayer and the ministry of the word particularly, that they're not distracted from doing that task. And it means that if you have other gifts, that you use those gifts that God has given you to free people up to support, to provide the context where the ministry of the word can be done. The idea, please understand, is not to pigeonhole people. The idea is not that you only ever have one job and that once you get your job, you have that for the rest of your life. Some, people, uh, some of the apostles ended up taking money for the famine relief to Jerusalem. And some of these people in this chapter who are set aside for waiting on tables ended up becoming evangelists. It's not about what job you're doing now or tomorrow as much as it's about working together to promote the gospel and not getting distracted from that task. Well, the issue in this chapter could have torn this church apart. They could have become divided 
and their witness to the world could have become impaired. They could have become distracted. And for, the same, and for that reason, their, their gospel witness could have become impaired as well. How many churches have had their witness damaged by the failure to deal with relatively minor problems? And how many churches have become distracted and ended up giving up the gospel? But here in Acts chapter 6, because the church and the church leaders together dealt wisely with the issue, the church continued to grow and the gospel went out. You see, that's what Luke wants us to know as well. At the end of verse 7, he tells us what the result of all this was. He says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. (laughs) Who would have thought that by God's grace, dispute resolution and careful planning could preserve the witness of the gospel and see the church grow. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we want to confess that our church, as much as any, is an imperfect church. Uh, Lord, a church in which we all uh, have our own different interests and ideas, Uh, which can sometimes get in the way of our working together and loving each other. Lord, uh, we know how true it is that small things can easily escalate into big things. Lord, we can so easily attribute the wrong motives to people uh, so that what is genuinely an oversight uh, can become a point of division, as it did in uh, the account of Acts chapter 6. Lord, uh, we confess that we're all prone to those problems and those sins. And Lord, together we ask that you would forgive us and have mercy on us, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that you would continue to work in us to make us uh, holy and perfect in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would give us the wisdom uh, and the love to deal with conflict and disagreements uh, as the early church did. Lord, not for our own sake, but Lord, so that the gospel might not be damaged and threatened by our unholiness and our sin. Lord, help us not to be divided uh, and Lord, help us not to be distracted from the central task which you have given us to to do together, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, that if we believe in him, we can know you uh, and be loved by you. We ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.